1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you that we could come and gather and worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray you would be with Mark now, Lord. He brings the sermon to us, Lord. I pray you would bless his study, Lord. Speak through him. Speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray you would grant us open hearts and discerning minds that everything done here today be for your glory and our good. In your name, amen. Amen. Once again, we get a chance to read God's Word. Last week, we looked at David and Goliath, the famous battle between David and Goliath, and my hope is that we were challenged to the point of not to find something new, but to diminish what we always thought was true, and is that we always think that we're David in that story. And so we hear there's movies made about it. Even in the secular world, you've got David and Goliath in sports, like, well, this is David versus Goliath. Who's going to win? But the reality is, is we're not David. And David's not even the hero of the story, which is shocking to us. But if we put ourselves in David's place, then we make ourselves David. And who is David? David is the anointed king of the Lord. See, we think that if we just trust in the Lord, then he will defeat all the Goliaths in our life, uh, which is a whole nother sermon, is not true. Sometimes he allows the Goliaths to basically nearly cut our heads off to teach us a lesson and to reveal his glory to him. We are not the anointed king of Israel. And God appointed David to save and deliver Israel from the hands of the enemies of God, the Philistines. And David, so, I should say, so David points us today not to himself, not to even us. Maybe I should reiterate, the Bible is not about us. Did you know that? The Bible is about God and how we find ourselves and know who we are as God's people is defined by who God is. And so David doesn't point us to us. He doesn't point us to the Goliaths in our life, whatever those may be. He points us to the true anointed king of Israel, who's Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Christ defeated God's enemies of sin and death and Satan. And like the Israelite army routing the Philistines, Christ empowers us as his people to fight an already defeated enemy all the way to the gates of hell, and those gates will not prevail. Because Jesus is the anointed king. Now, it's important for us to remember, he empowers us to fight sin and death. It's already defeated. It's the only way we could fight sin and death. You know that, right? Is the fact that they're already dead and lying on the ground. 
That's the only way we could fight them. And it's only by His power. It's only by His goodness. And it's only by His work that we are delivered and saved from sin and death. And without the anointed king, we're the Israelite army shaking in our boots, refusing to go out to defeat, to defeat Goliath because we know we can't. And there's no hope but only through Christ. Well, today, today's passage, there's a distinction between made, made between those who love David, the anointed king, and those who don't love David. And that distinction drives the truth of, truth of this passage home to us. And this is kind of the, the last question I'm going to ask at the very end. Do we love the anointed king? Because how we answer that question tells us whether we are the people of God who will be in his presence forever or we're the enemies of God who will refuse to be in his presence, don't want to be in his presence, and will be placed in hell away from his presence for all eternity. Now, one thing about going through these narratives, the first and second Samuel, is there are long chapters. And the way that we do stuff here is we don't really skip around. We, were, we, we read word for word through the chapter. And so like last week, you get to listen to my voice for a long period of time. So if you have your Bible or you've got a Bible app, pull it out to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Dan read um, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to read from verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, the reason why we do word for word, why we read the whole chapter rather than just skipping around and getting generalities is because there's a purpose for these words being in here. As, as uh, Aaron said, these are the words of God. This is God's word speaking to us, and we get the opportunity and the privilege to read it and to hear it and to understand it. And he put these words in here for a reason. This is not just a, hey, I want to let you know what's going on. It says there is a purpose and a point to this chapter. So that's what we want to wrestle with is how do we get there? So starting in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joys of song, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying dis displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had, had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved him, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Where is my elder? Here is my elder daughter Merab. 
I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let, us, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan, my father's clan in all Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at, that, at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalohite, for a, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And, the, and Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to me to become a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul said to him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Little side note, I'm not going to explain that. Congratulations, parents. Elias, you can go back and talk to your parents right now if you want to and ask me. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men, and I love this part, and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Four times we are told that David had success in whatever military action Saul sent him to accomplish. So much so that Saul eventually gives him a promotion. This shepherd boy, who by God's sovereign plan arrives at the battlefield, defeats Goliath, rallies the Israelite army to rout the Philistines. He is made a commander in Saul's army. And the same success that he had with Goliath was repeated in every battle over and over and over again. And Saul recognized it. And Saul's son, Jonathan, recognized it. And the people of Israel recognized it. And Israel's love for David grew with every success. And I want to focus when we talk about Israel's love. First, deal with Jonathan's love of, of David and then deal with the people in general and their love for David because their love continues to grow for David the more successful he is. is. Verse 1 it says this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, given the state of our culture today, I have to address this. I have to say this very, very clearly. David and Jonathan are not in a homosexual relationship. 
You may go like, really? That's what people, yes. It is being taught from pulpits today that that is what is happening. But I tell you, talking to any veteran of any battle, and they will tell you that the bond of love between brothers in battle is deep, rich, and very personal. How can it not be when you are willing to give your own life to save your brother's life? I've never experienced that. But we have veterans in this church who have. And maybe in your life you have veterans of wars and they can attest to this. This is how it is with Jonathan and David. Their love for one another is a love that is forged in the heat of battle. They stood side by side protecting one another. So much so that Jonathan recognizes David's anointing as king. That's how far his love for David goes. He makes a covenant with David, which is actually given in more detail in chapter 20. And Jonathan strips himself of his robe, his armor, the weapons. He gives them all to David. Now, it's important for us to remember that, if we remember back even a couple of chapters ago, Jonathan and Saul were the only ones in all of the nation who had swords. And he gives one of two swords in the nation to David, which leaves him, in essence, at the mercy of David, because now David has to protect him. And Jonathan's robe distinguishes him as the crown prince. It shows everyone around him that he is the heir to the throne. His giving of all these distinguishing items reveals not only Jonathan's loyalty, but his recognition that God has chosen David as the next king. And in fact, he says this explicitly in chapter 23, verse 15. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. He was willing to move away so that the true anointed king could come to the throne. Jonathan recognizes David's legitimacy as the Lord's anointed king of Israel, and he loves him as he loves his own soul. And then there's the people of Israel. Their love for David grows too. His success brings him more and more into the public eye to the point that even the princess falls in love with him. His willingness to go out to battle to protect Israel from the Philistines and his successfully coming home over and over again, despite the fact that Saul is you know, trying to send him out as many times as possible in order to get him killed, it makes the people's love for him grow to the point that his name was highly esteemed. That's a big deal in that culture. David was more than a fish in the pan or flash in the pan, I guess either one, military commander. He was was respected, he was revered in the eyes of all the people, including the servants of Saul, that means the household of Saul, that means those in the palace who were closely related and closely involved with Saul, and Saul's daughter, Michael. Everyone loved him and respected him. Almost. Almost everyone. At first, Saul loved David. 
We see that in chapter 16, verse 21. He loved David because David would come and play the lyre and give him peace. Every time David played for him and every time the Lord sent a harmful spirit to torment Saul, David would play, give him peace, but eventually that, didn't, that wasn't enough. Saul hears the women singing of David's ten thousands while Saul is attributed only thousands and he breaks. He becomes angry because very displeased, it says, and his jealousy takes root. Why would Saul be jealous of a shepherd boy? Well, because he realizes at that moment the significance of who David really is. Did you guys Did you guys catch it? Verse 9. I want to read that again. He says this. Verse 9 says this. Or verse 8. Or, hmm. Verse 8. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? That, That last part of that sentence is is important. It's not a throwaway comment. He's not making hyperbole like the women are. You know, David hasn't killed tens of thousands of men. He's killed Goliath and maybe some Philistines, but definitely not tens of thousands of Philistines. So the women are given hyperbole. They're talking about the greatness of these two men. But Saul's words here are not hyperbole. He understands that this man may be the neighbor who Samuel prophesied would be given the kingdom. The kingdom has been removed from you because you have disobeyed the commands of the Lord, Saul, and it is going to be given to your neighbor. And Saul sees it in this moment. He knows who David is. Saul's anger and jealousy are real, but there's another emotion that is making its way up in Saul's heart. Three times we are told that Saul is afraid of David. The shepherd boy, the king is afraid of the shepherd boy. Why? He wasn't really afraid of losing the kingdom. He wasn't fearful that the people loved David more than they loved him. Those are all side issues. Twice we are actually told, and I love it when scripture does this, he God gives us the reason why Saul was afraid, and it's very telling. In verses 12 and 28, this is what it says, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because, we see that word because, he's afraid, why? Because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Or in verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Saul could see that the Spirit of God was with David and not with him. He knew that God was with David and not with him, and it scared him to death. Just as with the battle between David and Goliath, again, we can easily make ourselves the hero, right? Or make David the hero even. He is, after all, the one who, he stood up to Goliath, right? Saul didn't do that. He's the one who went into battle over and over again to fight the Philistines for Saul. But David isn't the hero of any of these battles, and he's not the hero of this chapter. David had faith 
that God would deliver his enemies into his hand. He didn't rely upon armor or sword or military wit. He relied upon the presence of the Lord who was in him. David successfully was successful in everything that he did because the Lord made him successful in everything that he did. We could go back to the life of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was successful as a slave in Potiphar's house. He was successful in the prison. He was successful as second in command of Egypt. Why? Well, because three times in chapter of Genesis 39, it says the Lord was with him. Moses and Joshua were successful in leading God's people. Why? Because the Lord was with them. It says that in Joshua chapter 1 and Joshua 3, Joshua 6. The same can be said about the tribes of Israel and Judges. And even in 1 Samuel here, Samuel himself, it says the Lord was with them. They were successful because the presence of God was with them. And Saul failed because the presence of God was not with him. What a stark contrast between David and Saul. What a, a shift even for Saul. Saul loved David, remember? And this is chapter 16 and likely fought side by side with David against the Philistines after Goliath was killed. And yet now Saul is on the side of the Philistines. Do you realize that? He desires for God's anointed king to be killed. He's become David's enemy, meaning that now he has become even more so the enemy of God. Or maybe so, maybe a better way to say this is he's being revealed as the enemy of God. And yet wherever David went and all the success that he had, Saul utterly failed in every attempt to take David's life. Every single, whether it's a spear in his hand or sending him off to the Philistines to battle them or to get a bride price of a hundred Philistines, like, well, then they're for sure going to kill him. You know, you can't take the foreskins of live Philistines, right? It's going to be a pretty hard battle. And David's like, I'm going to get 200 just in case. Like over overachiever, right? Yeah, no, this is God. And this is it's done for a purpose. It's done for a point to prove to Saul who he really is and who David really is. But again, that success and that failure rested on the presence and the work of the Lord in those two men, or the lack of the presence of the work in those men. We may be tempted to make ourselves the hero. We may even say like, well, okay, so I've got the presence of God with me so that if, if I want to be successful in life, then all I got to do is have the presence of the Lord with me and I'll be given whatever I want. Whatever I go out and do, I will be successful. But as we learned last week, I'm not David. <laughs> You're not David. So we can't, we can't put ourselves in his place. And we can't separate the truth of chapter 17 and then and chapter 18 and switch it and say, well, I'm not David here, but I am here. Again, as I said last week, there are examples and principles from David's life that we can follow just as there is from Christ. 
or as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? So those are good principles, but that's not the focus of this chapter. So like we did last week, let's look at each of the, the characters in this, in this narrative. David, he's the anointed king of the Lord. He fights the enemies of God's people, and he is successful in defeating and fighting those enemies because the Lord is with him. Saul and the Philistines, they're, they're fearful of, they fight and they try to kill the anointed king of the Lord. Again, Saul has now become the enemy of God. He does everything possible to kill David, from throwing a spear, sending him out to battle, all of those things. He is now actively working to kill and prevent the true anointed king from taking the throne. Now, hopefully, if you've got a church background, this should be clicking in your mind, like anointed king, preventing the king from going to the throne. We'll get there. And then there's Israel. They love the anointed king. David's success in delivering and protecting them from the hand of the Philistines endears him to them to the point where his name is highly esteemed. They would follow him anywhere. They would do anything for him, even getting him a drink of water out of his hometown well in the middle of a battle. But that's for later. That's later down the road. The point is, is they would do anything for David because they recognize who he is. And so you have to go, well, who are we? Well, we're not the anointed king, so we can't be David. Which also means, that, uh, also means that we cannot say that if God is with us, then health, wealth, prosperity, and success are just around the corner. Because there's only one true anointed king, and his name is Jesus. It's not Mark. He is the one. Jesus is the one who finds success in all that he does. He is the one who the Lord is with to accomplish all that he desires. And as we saw last week, Jesus is the one who defeats the enemies of sin and death and Satan so that they no longer have power over the people of God. I cannot defeat the sin in my life, no matter how hard I try. And I will die, yes, physically, but I will die spiritually forever and eternal death in hell and there's nothing i can do to change that and let's be honest satan is way more powerful than i am he could do things and deceive in such a way that i am powerless against him on my own but thanks be to the anointed king jesus christ who defeated the enemies and empowers us as his people. So we're not David. We're not the anointed king. Does that mean then that we're Saul and the Philistines? Because we are, after all, enemies of God because of our sinful rebellion against him, right? I mean, that's, that's in the New Testament. Paul calls us weak, ungodly, enemies of God in Romans chapter 5. He uses those phrases. If we, like Saul and the Philistines, hate the Lord's anointed king jesus then yes absolutely we are enemies of god and this is how we all are until something happens but like saul 
if you hate his anointed king, God's anointed king, if you hate Jesus, that is a fearful place to be because you are the enemy of God. And you cannot and will not on your own merit and your own energy and your own desires love the anointed king. If you hate Jesus, you are the enemy of God. But, greatest word in all scripture, right? But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the anointed king, and you believe in your heart that God defeated death through raising him from the dead, then you are not an enemy of God. You are a child of God. Now, this is confession means I'm willing to speak it, but you can't confess until your heart is changed. And you believe, and when you believe, we, we not just believe, you know, it's not a, a head thought, it's a, it's a whole body, it's a whole person. I believe that Jesus is the anointed king, and I can't help myself but proclaim that truth and confess with my mouth. This is what I believe. Not just words. Words are worthless in one sense. But when said from the heart, it's a confession. Jesus is my king. When you become a child of God, it's because you love the anointed king. You esteem his name highly. The kicker is that because we were all enemies, again, he had to die for us. See, David went out and he fought and he was successful against the Philistines and eventually, spoiler alert, he takes the throne. Saul is killed. David takes the throne. The difference, though, between David and Jesus is that Jesus had to die to save his people. Because that's what our sin deserves is death. Remember when you're an enemy of God, you, you deserve death, eternal death, away from the presence of God. That's what we want. That's what we like because we despise the anointed king. We want nothing to do with the anointed king. We want to throw as many spears as we can in order to kill him. We want to send him into battle to try to destroy him. And we hate it that people love him. Our goal is to destroy and so it was with Satan. He wanted to destroy the anointed king to kill him. What he didn't realize is that was all in God's plan because the anointed king had to die in order to save the people of God. He had to pay the debt of our sinful rebellion against the Lord. And in doing that, he paved the way for us to become children of God. And in that, he, he changes us. He transforms us from enemies of God, weak like Saul, paranoid at the true king, despising the new, new king or the true king, not esteeming his name highly, but 
throwing it into the mud in every opportunity that we have, he changes us from enemies to children. And the Lord was with Christ. Yes, Satan killed him. Three days later, God raised Christ from the dead. And in that, he defeated the sin and death of us, his people, for all time. For all time. Completely. It wasn't a partial death. It wasn't a partial defeat. It was a complete and utter defeat of the enemies. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we Israel or are we Saul? And the answer is found in whether we love Jesus or we despise and hate Jesus. And not just Jesus of our own making. Like we like to do that, right? We like to think of this is who God is and this is who I think God is. And yeah, the Bible says this, but I don't really like that. I like this part. And so I'm going to use this part, and then I'm going to grab this part over here of this religion or my own thoughts, and I'm going to make a Jesus in my own image. But that's not the true anointed king. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Do we love who God defines as his son and reveals of his son in this book? Do we love him? Or do we despise him? And how we answer that question reveals where our heart lies and who we really are. And it's good for us. We have to remember in him alone are we saved. In him are we delivered from our enemies. And that if we love Christ, yes, he saves us, but our love for him like the love of the people for David, just grows and grows and grows. Because we know what this, this king that we believe in is never going to fail. He says, I will fight for you. He says, I will take care of you. He says, I will make a home for you so that when you die or I come again, then I'm going to have a place for you. I wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. I'm going to do all these things. And it's going to happen. Not only because the Lord is with Christ, but because Christ is Lord. That's the crazy part. David was not God, but Jesus was and is and always will be. Do we love him? Do we submit to him? Do we look at him? And we can't wait to serve him and esteem his name in our lives. Father, I pray this would be true for us, that, that we would not hold failure and success of us and our lives and what we venture to try and strive to accomplish, that that would be an indication, Father, of who we are, or whether we love you or your son, but knowing that it is in you and in your presence with your Son and His obedience to you and Him being God and perfect and dying on the cross for our sins. And Father, in Him, He's defeated our enemies and we can stand firm that you will empower us to fight sin. And when we fail, 
to fight the sin like we should, or, or we're reminded and lied to by the, by the devil and by Satan by saying, you're not good enough. You are not a child of God that we can stand firm and say, my identity is not found in my enemies. My identity is found in Jesus Christ. And he has fought. And I could stand and be empowered by him. Father, may we love you and love your son more and more and more. And Father, for those who are hearing these words and you are reaching into the heart and you're telling them you hate me. Father, may you change and soften their hearts, transform their hearts, Father, so that they might hear those words and not hear words of condemnation, but hear words of joy to say, I need you, God. I need you to fight and I need to trust in you save me father change their their hearts soften them so that they might believe and that they might love you and become their people your people we ask this father in your name amen